Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by Eddie Boyd, who is the sales rep for the Dayton and Columbus markets for Voyager Beverage. And if you're unfamiliar with Voyager Beverage, I mean, they're spread out across Ohio, but they're really focused on natural wine. And Eddie is kind of our rep for where I live, and I wanted to have someone on. We've only had a couple people on that kind of touched on wine sales. Chris from Parcel Wine we had on, who's kind of distribution and wine sales. We had Amanda Moss on too as well, who has a pretty extensive background in wine sales too. A lot of people who we have on talking about wine are more on either the restaurant side of things, working as a sommelier, or they were there and kind of shifted, you know, like Jessica was kind of into education. Same with Kendi Warden too as well. Want to have someone on to just kind of this other part of the wine industry that a lot of people don't really talk about. And he's kind of local to us, Eddie is. So really wanted to have him on um, just because we've touched on natural wine with a few people too as well. We just had our first natural wine festival here in Columbus. They have one in Cincinnati the same weekend, like the next day. And I think that's like the third year that they've been doing it. But, you know, Dan down at uh, Iris Reed is big in a natural wine. They have some natural wine products over at Hart and Crew in Cincinnati too as well. So it kind of touches on a lot of different guests that we've had on and kind of integrates in there pretty nicely too as well. So, you know, Eddie had a pretty interesting kind of way he got into wine. You know, he was really into kind of the beer and brewery side of things. Did a bunch of hiking too as well after high school and then found his way into wine and natural wine specifically and has just been kind of learning more and learning more on the job and through his own research and everything too as well. So you can find Voyager Beverage stuff like all over the place. He goes through during this episode a bunch of different places that you can find it. Lobert Supply House, the Bottle Shop here in Columbus too as well. Out in Dayton, it's Silver Slipper Wine Bar. There's a great wine shop that has stuff there from them. A handful of other places, Tony and Pete's, uh, Meadowlark Restaurant out there. So he runs off a bunch of different places where you can find some of the stuff that they're bringing into as well. And if you follow them on Instagram, their accounts and everything, they kind of put updates. They put up different little wine videos too as well, which are pretty cool to see. Pretty informative of kind of what they have, what's new, what's going on too. So you can follow Eddie on Instagram. Uh, his handle is at OC underscore Boyd. That is a play on Oil Cam Boyd, which is a famous pitcher um, from kind of back in the day. And that integrates into Eddie's hiking adventures and everything too, which he kind of touches on. So you can kind of follow him there for updates. You can also follow Voyager Beverage. It's just at Voyager Beverage. And you can follow the pop-up too as well. Don't take our weekend. Um, it's don't, no apostrophe or anything. So just D-O-N-T dot take dot our dot and then W-K-N-D for weekend abbreviated. But they'll be announcing their next pop-up when they do one uh, upcoming here through the Instagram channel and everything. So you can follow them there keep up to date with what they got going on when they drop the new event information so follow us on instagram too as well at spoon mob we're on twitter facebook all that other stuff mainly just use instagram we do use tiktok everything is either at spoon mob or at spoon mob one but mainly we use instagram uh, post different photos of different restaurants wine events all that stuff you can check out the website too as well all the photos kind of go there first before they make their way to instagram we got it broken out into different pages for everybody all of our guests we keep them in order latest to old List, master list for all the running episode links. So if you're looking for something specific, it's a little bit easier to navigate that than going through like Apple Podcasts because you have to constantly hit like load more, load more. They only load like 10 or something like that, I think, at a time. But you can find us on all the podcast apps too as well. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, 
Google Podcasts, which is still up, but eventually it'll be YouTube Music um, that it gets integrated into. All the smaller ones too, you know, Pocket Cast, Spreaker, all that stuff. Check out our YouTube channel too as well. All the episodes make their way over there. We're just at Spoon Mob on YouTube. Um, you can subscribe or follow the YouTube channel if you like to as well, as well as, you know, the audio podcast on whatever platform that you use. But that's kind of everywhere you can find us. You can shoot us an email, send us a message through the contact portal on the website. You can shoot us a DM through Instagram, whatever you want to do. If there's a question, comment, feedback, you're looking for a recommendation, you have a place you want to recommend. We're open to all that cool stuff. So Feel free to reach out. Um, we're always happy to respond and answer back with uh, anything and kind of help point you in the right direction if we can. Or it's always cool to hear from people that are listening to the, the episodes and everything like that too as well. But that is kind of it for updates. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Eddie Boyd, who is the wine sales rep for Voyager Beverage here in Columbus and also for Dayton, Ohio, and also one of the founders of the Don't Take Our Weekend pop-up. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day, coming on the podcast to chat about the wine industry and where you're at within it. Kind of first learned about you from your pop-up that you started, Don't Take Our Weekends, which is kind of a cocktail, natural wine pop-up that you've been doing. You guys have done like four to six kind of events. And the last one you guys did was in July. But then you've also recently joined the team at Voyager Beverage, which is a big natural wine distributor. They touch on kind of all of Ohio, but really prevalent in the Cincinnati and Columbus markets with kind of what their setup is. And, you know, they sponsored the first natural wine festival that we had here. They're a big uh, proponent in that. And obviously the Cincinnati one too, as well. And a bunch of different wine shops, you know, that we've been to. I want to get to kind of all that stuff where you're at in the wine industry, how you wound up there with Voyager and, and what's coming up with uh, the pop-up too. But for you yourself, you know, how did you kind of first get started? I always like to kind of start there with everybody, but you know, I know you were working at Antiques on High and Seventh Sun, but how'd you kind of first get started in restaurants and brew pubs and kind of all that stuff? First off, thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate being here. I kind of got my start, uh, well, I worked at uh, Jimmy John's and Chipotle in high school. So I uh, kind of made it a game to be the fastest delivery driver at Jimmy John's. And I always won that $25 gas card every month uh, to like that you get if you're the fastest driver. You know, I had fun with that, obviously, just like a, you know, high school job to like make some money. I'd always been like interested in cooking as a kid. Um, I remember like being at summer camp and like writing a menu, if you will, uh, air quotes there <laughs> for like uh, what uh, I would like serve at my restaurant. And this was when I was like 10, 12 years old. Um, so it was always kind of like um, something that I was interested in. I just kind of found myself, you know, enjoying, you know, the the pace of the industry and just kind of like how it's, it's just go, go, go all the time. Uh, you're And there's no downtime you get as much out of it as you put in. And I enjoyed that, like, you know, especially at Jimmy John's, like I made more money because I would get that sandwich to somebody in six minutes, you know? And they would be like, oh my God, I can't believe that you got me the sandwich so fast. And it seems silly now, but like, it would be like on the phone taking the order and I'd be like on the line, like making the sandwiches, like as they're still ordering. And like, right when they hung up, I would like walk out the door with the sandwiches they like to go. So that was kind of the start of it. And then it was at Chipotle. During all this, I um, was long distance backpacking. So I actually hiked uh, the Appalachian Trail in 2015, uh, the Pacific Crest Trail in 2016, Continental Divide Trail 
in 2017. So that's known as the triple crown of American hiking. Uh, it's about 8,000 miles. And that was my life after high school. From 18 to 20, I was just spending every summer hiking across the country. Had a total blast. That's kind of what I did uh, instead of college, if you will. Kind of uh, had plans to go to college, but I uh, knew I wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail. So I did that and got like totally addicted. Kind of did that. And that was um, five years of my life. Uh, so after the Continental um, Divide Trail, I made my own trail uh, on a computer through uh, Wyoming, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Uh, so that was 500 miles. Uh, in practice, drawing a line on a map and then trying to walk it is uh, very hard. And uh, that hike was actually the hardest one that I had ever done uh, to that point. That was like, and then after that, in 2019, I did the Colorado Trail, which is from Denver to Durango, 500 miles. And so I guess like, back to the connection to the industry, like, I kind of got this idea, like after the Continental Divide Trail that, hey, like, what if I bartend? Because bartending is like a skill that you can take with you all over the world. Um, you can, you know, get a job uh, wherever you need to, whenever you need to. Uh, if you Once you get in, basically, once you have the skills to do it, once you have a resume that you are a bartender, really sky's the limit. You, you can do, again, like you can get as much out of it as you want to put in. Basically... That's what I started doing. I um I was working for a catering company uh, during the hiking years, and they were like gracious with uh, letting me leave and come back whenever I wanted. Shout out to uh, Metro Cuisine here in Columbus, um, great catering company. After that, I was kind of you know I'd been with the catering company for four years, um, and I wanted something new, so went on to bar back at Antiques on High and Seven Sun because uh, my buddy uh, was working there at the time, and I uh, was like, hey man. You make 20 bucks an hour doing dishes at uh, Antiques on High. And sometimes it was great. Let's do it. I got into that. And then, you know, obviously the goal was to be a bartender because uh, not only is the money better, but I was completely enamored by it. Watching people, the the bartenders there currently like do their thing and, you know, flexing out pours and like, you know, doing like real like long pours and pouring two beers at the same time and getting creative with really cool cocktails and the theater of it all, like really kind of grabbed me. And I was like, well, I want to do that. Worked really hard after about eight months, um, was promoted on my first bartending shift, which was a Saturday night close at Seven Sun. Well, I ended up doing that for like two years. Um, definitely, <laughs> definitely saw some crazy stuff. Seven Sun's kind of in a unique place. Like it's a little bit off High Street. A lot of college students, a lot of uh, tourists, like beer tourists coming into town. Like Seven Sun, I'd say is probably one of the more well-known breweries in Columbus, um, especially for that kind of thing. Lots of people from, you know, all over coming to visit the brewery. Um, then working down in Antiques, um, getting into cocktails there. Um, it is a sour beer brewery. That's kind of what uh, Antiques uh, is. That's the the sour beer arm, basically, of Seven Sun. Uh, however, cocktails certainly drive sales there. I think that's kind of uh, like a uh, it's almost like a bait and switch. It's like come for the cocktails and maybe try a sour beer because um, the sour beers are excellent. I think uh, as far as Columbus, the scene goes, I think it's pretty much antiques and pretentious that are like uh, doing like a really, really high quality uh, barrel aged sour beer. That was really fun. Ended up being full time in antiques uh, after COVID. There was like a mass exodus from the industry there. The one upside of that is the young people in the in the industry get a chance to move up and like, you know, shifts are pretty coveted at Seven Sun and Antiques because I mean, they're consistent, they're good money, you know, the management's really good there. And people just, I mean, people have been at Seven Sun for years and years and years. 
uh, myself included. Um, I think uh, so. So I was able to work five days a week behind the bar uh, in antiques, uh, which was really awesome. It was in that time of like, all right, get in line, like, you know, stand six feet apart. Like, do you know this person that you're talking to? Because if you don't, you're going to have to go sit at this other table, you know, like it was definitely like, uh, not what I had imagined. You know, once things kind of got back to normal, I was really, you know, in the groove of things, um, doing five days a week there at Antiques, got an opportunity to work at uh, Ginger Rabbit, uh, which was really, really cool. Uh, Opened that up uh, with Seth Loffman over there at... um, Chapman's and um, John Marr, Mikey Holt, shout out Alex Chen as well. Really good crew there. Just like I was able to be for the first time, like surrounded by people who were focused on making very, very high quality cocktails. That was kind of what I'd been craving the whole time because antiques is volume. You know, antiques is just like we're cranking through, you know, doing 10, 15,000 in sales on a good Saturday, sometimes more. Um, So you just have to, you have to be fast and there's value in the volume cocktail uh, industry for sure. And I like those skills will always stay with me. I think it's really important, but I wanted to kind of refine it a little bit and I wanted to like go to the next level. Yeah, I was at uh, Ginger Rabbit for a year. Um, and, and during this time, like I really started to wine started to become something that I was getting interested in. We would have um, wine night, basically, on Monday nights at Bottle Shop. That's probably started like right after COVID. We started doing this. Me and like 12 of my friends would get together and everybody would buy a bottle. The only rule was you buy a bottle, you pour the bottle. And we would go through, you know, a case of wine in a night. And, you know, it's easier to do that with a bunch of people because you can be like, you know, two ounce pour, two ounce pour, you know. So that really like exposed me to tasting a lot of wine. And my palate started to get better and I started to appreciate it more. Obviously, um, Bottle Shop was kind of like a natural wine spot and it still is um, at the time. So that was kind of my intro into wine, which I think is unique. I think most people are not uh, introduced to wine through the natural wine category. Um, so that's kind of always been where my palate is and what I enjoy and what gets me excited. After that wine night for a long, long time, I, I started, you know, doing my own research and seeking out certain producers and that kind of thing. And um, and then the pop-up, uh, Don't Take Our Weekend, I was really looking for a place to put cocktails on a menu. So I'm not, I wasn't a beverage director at the time. It's kind of can be hard sometimes as a bartender to like put drinks out there on on menus. I wanted to do that. And I also wanted to push natural wine. Um, I wanted it to become um, something that Columbus is more into. So me and my friends, B. Coleman, Sean Gleason, uh, Julian Judge, and Jake Humphrey, and then um, had my girlfriend, Madeline Prindle, do the design work. So the four of us and Maddie, the first pop-up, I think, was the week after the mass mandate was lifted. So it was like absolutely insane. I mean, we did like eight grand in sales in one night and sold out everything, all the cocktails, all the wine, like 70 bottles of wine. I mean, I was really excited. I was like, this is awesome. Just kind of that format of like, here's, you know, five or six cocktails that we're like really interested in. And then here's like some, I, I would I do the wine list for it all and just say, here's, here's what I'm excited to drink right now. Um, and through that, I met Mark because I wanted to source wines from Voyager. Um, And our relationship just kind of grew. And then, yeah, like five months ago, the opportunity uh, to be the Columbus and Dean sales rep kind of opened up with him. I took it. And uh, so, yeah, it's been been five months with Voyager and uh, we're growing and uh, really excited for what the future holds. 
when you first get into hiking these trails, surprisingly, I actually know somebody who did the Appalachian Trail. What led to you wanting to hike these trails? Like, how did you find out about it? Like, was it just a curiosity thing? Like, what led to that? So I've always been kind of like an outdoorsy kid. I I went to summer camp. My mom uh, runs summer camps. That's like what she does professionally. So I was at summer camp every summer for at least a week, if not four or five weeks. And I'd always been interested in, you know, outdoor living skills and, you know, primitive, you know, fire making and primitive like hunting techniques and like, you know, uh, fox walking, like it's like a technique for like really quiet, like sneaky walking in the woods. So yeah, just always kind of like a naturey outdoorsy kid. Um, was really been I still fish all the time and was really into that as a kid too and just like to be outside. My high school buddy, uh, when we're freshman year, we like walk to lunch every day and just like he mentioned it one day. He was like, "Oh, like wouldn't it be cool to like hike the Appalachian Trail after we graduate?" You know, I was like, "Oh yeah, that that would be cool." And um, you know, we kind of would just like occasionally talk about it, and you know, eventually, like I kind of latched on to that idea. I was in a really cool program uh, at Upper Arlington High School called um, Community School. Uh, Community School was like this alternative learning program. It was a lot more, I guess, student-based. Like you could choose your path. You could choose what you wanted to learn about. Um, We like would have a meeting at the beginning of each unit. Like, what do you guys want to study? So that was really cool. And they gave me an opportunity there uh, with the the final senior project called The Odyssey. And you get the last quarter of the year to... Just you get like half the day of every school day to like dive in to that. So I was like, well, I'll do hike the Appalachian Trail as my odyssey. Yeah, just researched it a bunch and got prepared and it just stuck with me. It was something I couldn't let go. Um, So yeah, stepped off, actually flip flopped the trail because I tried to southbound the Appalachian Trail. So started up in Maine uh, to go south. Um, and I did Mount Katahdin and it completely destroyed me physically. And I was, you know, totally dehydrated and out of sorts. And actually I ended up quitting right there at the beginning of the trail and came back to Columbus and I'll never forget, like I had a buddy, like I was hanging out with him and I was like, Oh yeah, like it didn't work out. And he's like, he literally said to me, he's like, Oh, that's pretty lame, man. (laughs) Um, and uh, that was a gut check. I mean, I was like, Oh man. So and I was, I was obviously gutted that it didn't work out. But uh, so because of that push and just, you know, me wanting to give it another try, I started in West Virginia to hike north. It's called a flip-flop where you start in West Virginia, you hike north, you come back to West Virginia, you hike south. That was obviously way better. And I was able to, to complete the trail that way. And then while I was on the Appalachian Trail, I actually met a triple crowner and hiked like 900 miles with him. And I had to watch him finish uh, his triple crown like on Katahdin. Uh, so after that, I was just completely like, I have to do this. My understanding too, maybe it's mostly in the Southern part of the trail, but there's parts where the trail intersects with like highways and stuff. And there's parts where like you have to almost hitchhike through. Is that correct? So yeah, to get into town every three to five days, sometimes less, especially on the Appalachian Trail. Like if you want to, you can hitchhike into town like almost every day, depending on where you are. So yeah, hitchhiking is a big part of through hiking. Um, I've done a lot of hitchhiking. And so basically what you do is you're hiking along the trail uh, and you hit a road and some roads have towns down the road. Uh, So you can stand there and stick a thumb out and get a ride into town to resupply, to get a hotel room, to get a shower, 
I like to think of like through hiking as like a bunch of like three to seven day backpacking trips, like strung together. So like you basically like, you know, you're like, you make a plan, right? And you're like, all right, I'm going to hike to here and then I'm going to get a hitch into town and then I'm going to resupply and keep going. The first time you hitchhike in a town, what is that like? You know, you see all these horror movies, right? And that's how it usually starts, right? It's like the first five minutes of half of these horror movies. It's like somebody hitchhiking on a road and it's dark and everything. But, but what is that like if you can remember the first time when you did it? Like, all right, let's see how this goes. Yeah, uh, thankfully at the time I was like with other people. So, you know, uh, you can kind of safety in numbers, if you will. To be honest with you, uh, I'm a young 18-year-old kid. Um, I did not think about, you know, I'm also tall. I'm a guy. I did not think about the dangers of, of hitchhiking. Uh, and to be honest with you, I only had one, like of the probably 100 plus hitchhikes I did, I only had one like kind of weird experience. Um, it was in Tennessee and this guy pulls up in this like very bad at cars, but it kind of looked like a black like El Camino. And he's got like a brimmed black hat on and sunglasses. And he's like, I'll give you a ride. It was me and my buddy. There's trail names. So these trail names are going to send you here. Stank and Quiet Earp. Uh, And my trail name was Oil Can. The three of us were like, yeah, we'll hop into this car. You know, put our backpacks in the trunk. All is well. Um, We're driving to the trailhead. And the guy starts to, he's like, no, I'm going to take you to this trailhead and we're like no you're gonna take us to this trailhead um and it was a little bit of a scuffle there to like get him to do what we wanted him to do obviously no telling if there was malicious intent there maybe it was just more convenient for him to drop us off at the other trailhead but it was definitely like sketchy some bells were going off um but for the most part people know uh what you're doing you know in these trail communities people know um that you you just need a ride to town and you look like a through hiker you're wearing like athletic clothes you have like you know a nice backpack on like it's basically like being homeless but with like fifteen hundred dollars worth of gear on your back um so like you kind of stick out like a sore thumb the hitchhiking thing like again like i'm a guy i'm tall i'm a big guy like people are not gonna mess with me typically so i never had you know bad of experiences but you definitely see like other people having a rougher time with hitchhiking for sure are there any trails left that you want to do or have you kind of done all of the ones that you wanted to? You know, I mean, I could see it. The, the problem is, right, like when you're 18 to 22, like life's a little easier to kind of like put aside, if you will, I guess. Um, so like now I've got, you know, now I got a car payment and, you know, I got expensive rents and I have a full time job where like, you know, I'm the point of contact for sales, you know, like people need, you know. If you need wine, you have to hit me up. Right now, like it's definitely not on the radar. However, I could definitely see myself doing something again. Uh, if not, maybe something shorter, like uh, like a month long trip would be really fun. Uh, it's definitely not, yeah, it's definitely not the end for me. But you see three groups of people out there. You see people who are fresh out of college, freshly retired, and then, or you just have people that are just generally like transient in their life. You know, like they just don't really don't. They have like no connections. Uh, we call those people lifers, you know, they're just like, this is what they do. You know, they just like work, ski. they work at a ski resort in the wintertime and they hike in the summer. We'll see. So when you join the team at Voyager and Mark, obviously their focus is natural wine and everything. That's kind of how you first got into wine was through that as well. But when you get started in kind of a, the wine sales profession, 
how does that kind of line up? Do they have already kind of a, a book of business for you to take over, you know, or they're like, Hey, like here's, you know, half of this market, like kind of develop the other half. Like how does that kind of materialize for you when you're getting started? You get the existing business, which is cool. Um, there's definitely some natural wine kind of stalwart locations here in Columbus that being like uh, the Lobbered bar and supply house bottle shops, a big supporter, silver slipper out in Dayton um, is a, is a really big supporter. I think I started with like maybe 30 active accounts. Obviously the goal is to service them, but then because I'm a new salesperson, like to expand that as well. When you first get into natural wine, people have different definitions of it, right? So what's kind of your definition of natural wine? Because some people it's, they get into all the fancy terms, you know, it's biodynamics, blah, 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 blah. Some people are just like, it's the way it was grown back in the day before machinery, all that stuff. How do you define it yourself? Well, it's a spectrum, right? I think there's there's a range of practices that people decide to adhere to. Depends on where you are. It depends on the style of wine you're trying to make. Um, it depends on, you know, what your your values are in your personal life, in your business life. Um, so, I mean, winemakers make these decisions at the end of the day because they want to put the best wine in the bottle that they think they can put in the bottle. I mean, natural wine movement started in the Beaujolais uh, in the 80s. Marcel Lapierre, Jules Chauvet are kind of like the, well, among others, are kind of like the godfathers of natural wine because um, they were, you know, upset with what was happening uh, in their region with industrial industrial winemaking. They just said had kind of realized that they lost all the personality uh, in their wines and, you know, the region wasn't showing what they knew that it could show. And then also the additives. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that there's over 400 approved additives to wine in the United States. Um, and that's any, everywhere from, you know, sulfites as a preservative, you know, red dye, there's you know, fining and filtration agents and all kinds of stuff you can add. I guess they just kind of decided that it didn't seem right, right? Like we want to put as close to like our land in the bottle as possible. And it, they decided through obviously lots of experimenting and years and years of developing their methods that this style of winemaking, when done right, is the best expression of their terroir. I tend to agree with that uh, because... Uh, how are you supposed to express a place while you're adding things to control the wine, basically? Um, so when you're adding preservatives, you are, I don't want to say easier because that's probably wrong. You are intervening in the natural process of fermentation. And it's something that does not need intervention. Uh, it's something that you know has been happening for thousands and thousands of years. And it's our job just to, you know, oversee and kind of get the closest thing to an expression of a place as possible in a bottle. Now, so I say it's a spectrum. So like there's certain things that we are like, okay with because things have to work for restaurant accounts. We're a business and it's important that, for example, a lot of these natural wines do not pour well on day two because they lack preservatives. Um, so the wine will go like, Mousy, which is like kind of like a, for me, it's like a tortilla chip kind of finish on the wine, or it's like the, the finish will be just a little bit longer than you want it to be. It kind of lingers and it's not a desirable thing. The flavors can go kind of flat and just kind of lose its fruit and not be as expressive, um, which you don't want either. 
So, you know, some, some natural winemakers, which I'm personally okay with this, will add like a touch of sulfite at bottling. That's pretty much like what seems to work is just like, hey, 10 ppm or 20 ppm sulfur at bottling just keeps the wine in a place where you can use it in a restaurant setting, have it work for you and have it not be pouring money down the drain. Because obviously, restaurant margins are extremely thin. And so we want to make sure that, you know, they're getting wines that work for them while still being, you know, organically farmed or biodynamically farmed, hand harvested grapes, regenerative farming, if possible, is always good. It's basically wine that, you know, we're trying to give back to the land and express a place and support small production. Um, So small production winemakers and estates and that sort of thing. Uh, natural wine is kind of a kind of a buzzword. I think uh, I use it all the time. It doesn't really bother me, but a lot of people will call it like uh, low intervention wine, or there's lots of other terms for it. But um, that's that's what it is for me. It's a spectrum, and I can find something that I enjoy on that entire spectrum. And then you have your dogmatic, like you know, zero zero, like nothing added, nothing taken away, no sulfites added, like very hardcore natural winemakers, and they have a place as well. But it's probably more likely on a retail shelf, you know, because you're going to open that bottle and you're going to drink it right there. And those, I mean, for me, those wines are by far and away the most exciting. But just for like a restaurant, uh, sometimes, sometimes it can't be, it, it's not as practical. So natural wine is how you got into wine. And so far with your experience at Voyager, has the natural wine movement continued to grow? Like people that you've interacted with, you're like, oh, wow, there's way more people that are into this than I initially thought. Or does it seem like it's not a flash in the pan thing, but it's, you know, maybe the trend now, but it won't always kind of be as populous as it's become? Uh, I think it's here to stay, personally. Uh, I think we're still rolling the ball uphill a little bit. I think it's going to be at least another year or two before Columbus really, like, catches on to what these wines are. At the end of the day, like, we just want to put good wine in people's glasses. Well-made wine, exciting wine into people's glasses. And I think that that over the, I think that will win over like any kind of like trend that natural wine may be. I think people will get to a place where like, it'll just be on the regular shelf and, you know, I won't have to like explain it as much while, while it's important that we know that we're drinking natural wine and like, we should be supporting these, you know, farming practices and these like smaller producers and that kind of thing. I think it'll just become more ingrained in the wine world. I think it will be something that, you know, is seen as like a positive. People do kind of sometimes meet that with some apprehension. You know, a lot of people have been burned, if you will. You know, some people that I have like tasted natural wine with in the past, you know, have like these ideas and I'm in my head, I'm like, who hurt you? You know, like <laughs> what, uh, like what wine like really like puts you off? You know, I'm like, what have you tasted in the past? That's just really like made you completely dox an entire category uh, because like I said, it's a spectrum. There's really, really pretty stuff that is, you know, has varietal typicity and, you know, has, you know, is traditional to the region. And and then you have these renegade, sometimes young winemakers who are just out there like doing whatever they want. And I think there's beauty in, in both of those things. So I think it's here to stay for sure. How competitive is the wine sales market? You know, whether it's Columbus or Ohio, we talked to people who worked in wine sales out in like California and 
it's pretty competitive out there. They said it's it's pretty cutthroat. But with Ohio, we make wine, but it's not a region known for making wine, right? It's not a upstate New York or Virginia or anything like that. So is it super competitive or is it, you know, because you're on the natural wine side of things where there's not really as much cutthroat because it's you're in this pretty unique category that's kind of all by itself, even when you get into kind of wine sales overall? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely still pretty competitive, especially when you get into your non-natural wine focused accounts. These, you know, uh, distribution relationships are pretty sticky. Like, you know, you can work with uh, Vintage, for example, like they've been around for years and years and years. And people have been buying from the same vintage rep for years and years and years. And like they kind of have their person, if you will. And some people are apprehensive to bring on another distributor. My biggest challenge currently is like, hey, I'm Voyager. Here's what I have to offer. Kind of explaining to them that, you know, what differentiates us, I think, is service. Like I have a lot more bandwidth to be more present uh, with my buyers than I think other reps do. I'm able to kind of be more of a consultant. I didn't realize like coming into this role, how much consulting I do. Cause like when you think about wine buyers, retail shop managers, uh, they're busy, busy people. Like the wine buying is just one cap that they wear. So anything that I can like take off of their plate, I am happy to do it. Um, because that's how you can build a relationship with them and how you can, you want to get on the same side of the table. And you want to like, you know, show them that you're there to like work for them instead of, you know, I'm not just here to sell you wine. I'm here to help you. Um, I'm I'm here to help you like have a more profitable wine program. And I think that that's the biggest thing I've learned in the last five months with Voyager is that it's a relationship business and these things take time and you just have to, I'll, I'll quote the owner of Cream Wine, you have to show up and follow up. That's really important. So you cover both Columbus and Dayton. If there is, what's the biggest difference between the two markets, you know, in terms of, have you noticed anything where it's maybe a certain type of wine that sells in one versus the other, whether it's a grape varietal or producer or anything, have you noticed any differences between the two markets that you've been you know, working in? Well, the biggest difference for me is Dayton is full of young entrepreneurs in independent businesses doing what they want to do. You know, Columbus is definitely dominated by chains um, and you just don't see that in Dayton. Uh, I mean, look at, you know, Sueño, Tender Mercy, you know, Silver Slipper Press, Tony and Pete's, Meadowark Restaurant, you know, not to like forget any of my accounts. I love them all. They are doing what they want to do unapologetically. And I love that. And and the people of Dayton seem to love it as well. Dayton's a, a touch more, maybe like a touch more price sensitive, I think, than, than Columbus. Uh, I can get away with like selling I have a couple of accounts here in Columbus that are a little higher end. But other than that, like um, as far as like being willing to like experiment with like different stuff and like see what works and and general excitement about these wines, Dayton is like really, really awesome. So that that surprised me. I remember going to Dayton the first day and I was like, because I've never been, I've lived in Columbus my whole life. I've never been to Dayton. And uh, I remember like driving back my first sales day. I was like, Dayton is awesome. It is so cool. 
that was great. And then, yeah, as far as Columbus goes, you know, um, it's just, I, I, it's just a boots on the ground effort. You know, there's, there's more competition here. So you just have to be more present than other reps. With kind of Columbus being that way, you know, and we've talked to a couple people previously and one of the things we kind of alluded to or, or asked was, you know, is wine sales a dying profession? You know, you have people that just now can order straight from a giant wine group, you know, whether it's California and some of that falls within where Ohio law is too as well, stuff that you can and can't have shipped to you. But with that, with you being in the natural wine side of things, does that make it more beneficial because a place having a rep because you can come in and bring them something that they probably haven't found on their own? Like if you're running a wine shop, you can find like Napa Cab. I can probably order this from somebody. You know what I mean? Like you don't need a rep for that. But like, I think you kind of hit on it too earlier, but is being a wine sales rep kind of shifting from being in sales more so to being a consultant where you can bring them cool stuff that they haven't seen or haven't encountered and maybe that kind of shifts their program instead of them just going like, well, yeah, a lot of people here, you know, they really always kind of move Cabernet Savion. So like, let's get some, let's just order, go through the sheet, click, click, click of all these Napa producers and bring that in. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for some people that's going to work for some wine lists and some restaurants and some even retail spaces, that is something that they're okay with doing. I cater to a customer that's a little more engaged than that. Um, someone who wants to taste the wines before they put them on a menu or on a shelf, people that want to curate a selection that they're excited about. That is definitely the type of customer that I appeal to. But yeah, I think um, I think you're right, though, that, that it's becoming more digital. I mean, I definitely, I'd like to be at a point in five years where I can sell, you know, over 50% of my wine via email because I have those relationships with people people know the portfolio and they know, I mean, this is how it is with bigger distributors that have been around for a long time. You know, they can say, Hey, so-and-so the new vintage of this is in, you know, would you like some, you know, because they know that wine and you can kind of manage those relationships a little more uh, remotely, if you will, that will always be important for me to be out in market though, because how, how else are you supposed to know really how someone's business is going, really what their customers are looking for, without being in the market. Um, and I think that like AI will never take away wine sales because you just, it's a person to person business and um, you're only going to get that premium service, a person who is in your shop or in your restaurant, like, and their job is to help you bring the best wine forward for, for your guests. With natural wine, I think a lot of the producers of it are usually on the smaller side, right? So is that also a challenge that you guys kind of sometimes face where there's somebody that's making a great natural wine that you guys love, you're able to move it, but they might have a more limited quantity than you'd like, or possibly they might have a relationship with you guys, but then somebody else that also brings it in. So it kind of splits kind of the amount that is available for you guys to kind of, is that something that you guys encounter a little bit here or there because of natural wine producers being a bit smaller in size versus, you know, places that are buying grapes and from different growers who don't make their own stuff and all that. Production is small and some stuff is limited. So that's the other piece here is that basically we're competing, especially in like the natural wine scene, we're competing with bigger markets. We're not really competing with other distributors because really when you sign a contract with an importer, you're the only person in the state that like gets access to those wines with like a few 
a few exceptions, but especially for like the really sought after natural wine, like the producers that people know and are, are in love with, we are competing with New York, LA, um, San Francisco, larger wine markets, basically that gobble this stuff up. I mean, there's, there's stuff like I even went to Portland, Maine last week and I went to um, chat out Maine and Loire uh, in Portland, Maine, amazing wine shop full of stuff that I would never see here in Ohio, just because they're closer to New York city. And there's a little bit more of a clientele there. And I think, I think the shop owners have like really solid connections in New York. So they're able to get stuff that we'll never get here, or maybe it'll take years, you know? So that's definitely a challenge. I mean, you know, and I need, I guess like it helps if my, like, especially for like restaurant accounts, like it's not necessarily a problem for retail because something sells out, something sells out, you know, no big deal. But if someone's like trying to pour something by the glass and they've printed it on a menu, like it can sometimes be hard to navigate that. And I definitely want to make sure that, if, you know, if you choose something by the glass for me, that it's going to be, you know, available to you for a reasonable amount of time. So I can like, you know, I can create whole invoices and, you know, make sure we can agree on a number like, hey, is, is four cases enough for a glass placement? Cool. Like, let me reserve that for you. And like, but after that, it's gone, you know, and like maybe next vintage, you know, we'll get it back next vintage, that kind of thing. Um, we we also have some wines that don't run out of stock for sure, like a, a decent amount, and, and that and that part of it is only growing uh, because basically, like if I walk into a restaurant and the menu is like laminated, it's gonna be hard for me to work with them. Uh, I definitely have a few wines that could go. That's definitely a thing, and that's what makes it. I mean, it, I I personally like. I don't know if if you're a regular at a restaurant, like it's nice to have things kind of be rotating a little more often. However, that is more effort on the staff, more effort on the buyer just having a, a wine list that's just changing like every two weeks while there are places that do it is very difficult. Now that you're in the, the wine profession, do you plan on taking any certifications, any exams, exploring that route, or are you kind of just working through the knowledge that you get with just learning about your portfolio and how all of that works? I have interest in um, pursuing the WSET diploma for sure. That's definitely something that I think is valuable uh, because it forces you to learn stuff that you are not necessarily interested in, but you still need to know. And it forces you to learn those little, you know, little regions or little details or little things that, you know, might help you in the future. So that's definitely something that I'm interested in pursuing. I actually have the WSET level two um, workbook, if you will, on my desk. And I like kind of casually read it and go through it. Um, But I haven't like taken any concrete steps towards those certifications. Yeah, obviously, you know, with the court and the CMS program, like uh, I'm not in service. So it really like makes sense for me to go through that. Um, However, I do have a lot of, uh, it blows my mind, like the people that go through that and like make it to master or even like advanced, like it's, it's uh, quite a hardcore program. I definitely have a lot of um, personal respect for the people that have like, you know, gone through all that, you know, namely, obviously, Greg Stokes here in town and uh, Chris Dillman too. Um, those guys are doing more for wine education in Columbus than I think a lot of people realize, which is, it's really, it's been cool to work with both of them. And so, yeah, I don't know for me, for me, it's just, I, I see W set um, for sure at some point down the road, but it's not like a, it's like maybe not exactly top of mind right now. Uh, I get to taste every day, I, which is, I, it's amazing. Like how much my palate has grown since working for Voyager. I know it's only been like five months, but again, like I get to taste wine like pretty much every day and it's really helped. It's I've grown a lot from it. And then just like personal research, you know, from our portfolio for sure. 
Going back to your pop-up, don't take our weekend for a second. You know, when you mentioned you guys did the first one, sold out of everything. Did you guys instantly go like, was this just because it was like a fluke? Like, because it's the first thing back from COVID, like, let's do this again and see. And then, I mean, obviously it was a success because you've done like four or five or six of them. But with that, going back to that, did you guys remember like, wow, we sold out. You know, once you come down from that high, you start thinking like, why did we sell out? Like what, like, why was this so popular? Well, I, I'll say it. I mean, Columbus loves pop-up. Uh, most pop-ups that you go to are like absolutely insane. And I think that that's a maybe, you know, a small indication that the consumers are looking for something new. Someone who's pushing the boundary. They're looking for special limited things that don't happen very often. And first one was a, a wild success. Uh, they've all been quite successful. I think we had one where we like, you know, maybe I prepped too many cocktails and we had like a, a decent amount of leftover stuff, but nothing's been like a total failure or anything. Obviously the, the sponsors really help like Watershed, Bacardi, Plantation, you know, shout out to those reps. Um, and then also Voyager support has been awesome as well with that. So that kind of helps like take the risk away, basically. It helps like, you know, us be like, all right, well, we're just going to send it like we're sponsored, you know, and then, you know, obviously Seven Sun has been like, you know, extremely generous to like have them, you know, or to let us in their space and then also like use their equipment. And uh, we're kind of in a unique situation where it's like, yeah, like not a lot of risk or overhead for us to do these events, which is awesome. Um, And then now, obviously, because we've done it a bunch, like I kind of like it has its own like bank account. And so like we have like a a fund basically that we can like use to like put on more events. It's been wild. I I, I cannot believe how po- like how popular it's been and support we've received from the community on it is just like overwhelming. Um, and it's really cool that we we have the opportunity to to put it on. Any future events scheduled yet for the rest of the year or anything? Uh, nothing scheduled currently. I, I kind of wanted to like so like you know I mean it's with the pop ups you know if you. If you, I feel like if you overdo it, like if you have too many, it kind of loses its like luster, if you will. I want to keep it fun and exciting. And uh, obviously with the new job, my bandwidth is a little bit, a lot bit less, I would actually venture to say. So yeah, we do, we have some stuff like in the works. Um, would love to do like a kind of some fun ideas. Like we like to do like a martini focused pop-up where we just like, you know, it's like all martinis and like. You know, that that was kind of one of the first events we wanted to do, but we we didn't we weren't sure we had the following to like pull off something of that like kind of niche, you know? Um, because we're all like really big like into martinis and wanna like kind of showcase like what it what a martini can be, because it's a very, very complicated drink a lot of people don't realize. So that's an idea. And then we wanna do like a sh- just a straight up like trashy industry party called Don't Take Our Shifty, uh, which would just be like boiler makers, so shots and beers only. Uh, obviously curated shots and beers that we think go together like really really well um so those are some kind of ideas behind the pipe or down the pipe and then we definitely want to do more wine events so we did don't take our wine night uh this summer off the heels of natty wine fest had some producers there uh that was awesome sold nine cases of wine funny enough it was like one of the most profitable events we've done and uh it was just cool to see people excited about only wine you know i didn't offer anything else but wine everything by the glass um, so I would love, we'll definitely do that again. Um, and I would love to have like a chef partner to like do some food with it as well. You know, the format like that we've had in the past of like, 
um, you know, six drinks, six wines, like, like we'll likely do that again in the future, but I just don't want it to get stale. Right. I want to keep it fresh and exciting and I want to change things up. And that's the nature of a pop-up. Yeah. That's kind of what's coming down the pipe for, for don't take our weekend. This past summer was the first Columbus natural wine festival. You were involved in that. How did that go? Was the turnout as big as you anticipated, expected? Yeah, it was great. We sold out, or I guess I should say they sold out 350 tickets, I think. Uh, which is awesome for a first uh, year doing an event. It was definitely like, it was cool to see people excited about these wines. You know, there was a huge diversity of wines being poured, producers, regions, the whole nine. Uh, Everyone got to participate. I think most of the major distributors in town. And I thought it was really cool. I I feel like uh, that's the kind of thing that we need to push the scene forward. People need to taste these wines. Like uh, half of my job, is getting wine in people's glasses. I mean, because that's how you win hearts and minds. People can have all the ideas that they want, but when they taste the wine and they're like, this is delicious, that's when you really make progress. And that's when you really get people interested in the category. So yeah, like those kinds of events are are awesome, for sure. The Beer Fest in Columbus, I feel it was a big thing. I think it still is very popular, but I think there's a lot of people that no longer go because it mainly the winter one, I think kind of turns in a bit of a shit show. Like I remember one year they had a, used to be called the LC and it was just, it, got, it reached a point where it just got so crowded in there. You couldn't make it from one side to the other. I think maybe different venues and stuff kind of turned people off to it, but what's your idea for keeping the natural wine festival from becoming something like that, where people are a little turned off by just the comings and goings and, and everything that kind of sometimes gets associated with it, with the beer fest that is. Honestly, not too familiar with the beer fest um, here in town, but I mean, I think as long as you, you know, keep it, obviously a limited number of tickets are sold and you got to have the right venue. And, you know, obviously the craft beer movement, I feel like is kind of maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but it's kind of feels like it's on the downward slope a little bit. Uh, The market's like super saturated. Uh, Everyone's got a hazy IPA out there. And I just feel like, especially in Columbus with like, what, over 50 breweries, it like it's it's oversaturated, I think. And I think that the hype for that is like also going down. Just like I said, with don't take our weekend. If you just are doing something, the same thing over and over and over again, people are just going to become numb to it. Um, I think the difference with natural wine is like, it's uh, it's another language. It's a whole world out there. It's always changing. You know, even the same wine from an last vintage to this vintage could be a completely different blend or you have new producers and constantly like in Ohio, like as the scene grows and as we get more people into it, we're going to get access to cooler stuff. Importers are going to start sending things to Ohio because there's demand, right? And we're seeing this with Voyager. We're getting bigger and bigger allocations on very limited wines because you know, the importer sees that we're selling this stuff. Like, I think the difference is, you know, it's not the breadth of wine is like, so wide, you know, and I know the beer world, the breadth of beer is like very wide as well. But I think the wine world always just has something new and exciting to offer. I feel like I don't want to like Nick knock beer too much, because I think uh, like, that's, that's how a lot of people come up. And that's how I came up. And I love beer. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's something that uh, it's still pretty fresh. Like the wine in general is still pretty fresh to wine as like something that a customer is or a consumer is thinking about intensely and learning about is new to Ohio, I think, on like a wider basis. Um, so I think that 
that event will continue to grow and continue to be exciting for those that are into it. What's one thing that you'd want to change for next year's Natural Wine Festival? Is it the layout? Is it the venue? Is it just having more ice available? Like, is there one thing that that you saw that was like, oh yeah, we we should probably fix that or change that for next year when we do this again? Greg runs the Natural Wine Festival. Um, I think for how it went for the first year, like couldn't really ask for more. I think it went really well. I think um, maybe a little bit more maybe it would be nice to have more producers. Like, you know, we, we only had like maybe four actual producers, um, which is always just, it's always so cool to meet the people who make your wine. That's how you make a fan for life. You know, like if you, if you can shake the hand of the person who has made the wine that you buy at the corner store, like for the weekend, like that is really cool. And that's something that I feel like not a lot of categories of spirits and beer and other alcohol can provide. I think that, uh, so that would be cool. The venue was awesome. It was like down there, uh, off a of town, I think, uh, it was like this atrium. Uh, it was absolutely beautiful. I mean, it, it rained. So it was like so humid in there. <laughs> Obviously can't control that. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it'll, it'll continue to grow and get more organized and like, you know, they'll get their systems like dialed. It's getting, you know, it's the kind of thing that takes time, you know, it's like with the Natty Wine Fest in Cincinnati, like we doubled you know, attendance this year. So 600 people were there this year uh, and it was full of producers. So, and that's just after like a couple of years, sky's the limit on that. Is there a wine region, you know, that you're excited to potentially focus on in the future that you maybe haven't so far that much? I'm still like in a a point in my life and career with wine where I kind of have like a wider like breadth of interest I guess like I'm like really dialed it in, but like a couple of things that I'm really excited about right now, the Loire Valley for sure. Um, really digging on some Chenin Blanc and some Cab Franc from that area. Always have loved Beaujolais, you know, obviously really love some of the stuff from Southern France as well. Just like what I'm more interested in over region is a story is a producer that is like out there just doing their thing, making exciting wine, is sending it over here to the U.S. in like smaller lots. I'm kind of I like I like to hunt for allocated stuff. Like for example, like uh, well because because my job I get to go to like every wine store like all the time, and so sometimes I'm like waiting for a meeting or whatever, and I just like browse the shelves and I find some really cool stuff. I mean, I, like a couple of weeks ago, I found like a 2014 vintage chardonnay from Le Lune, which is one of our producers, and it was on sale for 20 bucks, and I'm like what like um you know or like I, I found a random store out in springfield i won't say where because i want to buy it but there's a bunch of palo bea just sitting there on the shelf which if you're not familiar with palo, palo bea just like super cult like natural wine producer from um from italy so yeah like that kind of stuff interests me um, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to like you know i want to taste the legends basically i want to become familiar with the biggest names in our category that's kind of where I'm at in my journey with tasting and learning about wine. So really like, I guess like, I don't want to say like, oh, if the wine has like clout or the producers, like, you know, kind of like hard to get or whatever that, that, that stuff always gets me like really excited. Um, And especially if there's like a cool story to like back it up. And a lot of the disciples, if you will, of Marcel Lapierre, like uh, Jean Fouillard and uh, Jean-Francois Nique and a couple other producers all around France 
I'm like very interested in trying all of those. Um, we've kind of sent some content out Voyager wise, like over the last couple of weeks, like getting people hip to these wines and these producers. And um, I, I would recommend um, there's a book called the world of natural wine. Uh, if anybody wants to get into it, uh, I think you can buy it at prologue uh, on high street, a couple other places, I'm sure. But uh, really awesome book by Aaron Acecoff that kind of goes through all these producers and like the people who have like brought natural wine into the modern. There's a lot to learn there. The book is like about the why and the how, um, wines to try, producers to know about. Definitely something that I kind of reference like uh, a lot. And those are the wines that I'm typically pretty excited about. Anything else coming up for you professionally? I think probably not, but uh, I'll just ask the question anyways. I mean, obviously you're doing your stuff with Voyager. You have the pop-up uh, to probably formalizing the next event, but anything else going on? You know, not currently. Yeah, just really, really focused on Voyager. Um, I've got a market to build. You know, uh, I have a lot of work to do and that is top of mind right now. Um, and that's really the only thing that I'm focused on. Uh, long-term goals? sky's the limit, right? Like I'm in the wine world now. I've got my feet in and I just, I'd like to see where it goes. You know, maybe it means New York or San Francisco or um, here staying in Ohio, you know, moving up with Voyager or working with another distributor, or I haven't really dipped my toes into production at all. I'm kind of hoping to go out for harvest um, next year just to check it out for like a couple of weeks. Kind of trying to remain open for opportunities and see what could be next for me but yeah right now it's definitely like head down focused on bringing the best natural wines to columbus and dayton the next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast chef cody Swegan. he left behind for you what are you doing to perpetuate a positive experience for your workers if you have any and those that are around you that you interact with for me that's just being excited having a you know an optimistic view of, of where we are in the restaurant industry and in the retail industry, bringing my best foot forward every day and just trying to not only be like uh, someone who is like there to sell you wine, I guess, but I also want to be like, I would like to be your friend, ideally. I know that's not always like possible, but um, just trying to be someone that people can rely on um, is definitely uh, really important to me. And um I think that that goes a really, really long way in providing like a positive experience with the people that you work with. What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? What would you want to see more uh, from like your current restaurant and industry scene? What do you think is missing from it? And what would you like to as a consumer? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what is the one wine not in your portfolio that you wish was? Well, I, I think everyone wants to say this, uh, more champagne. We're working on it. Um, but obviously, champagne is like extremely uh, hard to come by sometimes and uh, quite expensive as well. So, um, but yeah, for me, uh, like I am obsessed with the champagne on like a, on like a personal level, uh, like a lot, of, a lot of grower champagnes. That kind of thing. I guess what comes to mind is um, the producer is escaping me, but uh, it's JL. And then the last name is escaping me, but uh, Conversation. Uh, it's a Skernick wine currently. Um, absolutely incredible champagne. I, I really love the Meunier dominant champagnes. Uh, Leobart Renier is another producer that comes to mind. Uh, would like love to sell those wines. That would be really fun. 
So the last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, so a little bit of a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far, looking back on it? As far as my wine career goes, uh, Luke and Annie from Lawbird were, were huge for me. I worked there. I, I forgot to mention that I worked at Supply House. I opened Supply House. I worked there for about eight months. Uh, so, you know, they encouraged me to learn uh, quite a lot. That was my first wine job, like wine-specific job. I used to work at Poly G's as well. Uh, I was the beverage director there. So that was like kind of like I, I was a buyer just like out of out of nowhere. Um which was awesome. And then, yeah, I decided to, because, because of that job and how much I loved buying wine for poly G's, I was like, I want to do wine only. So then I went over to supply house. Yeah. They just encouraged me to learn and taste. And I think they've done more for natural wine specifically in Columbus than anyone. And so that definitely, they were a huge influence in that way. Yeah. I guess I, I learned most of my cocktail stuff from like YouTube, you know, my biggest influences there are like uh, Leandro Riva from the educated barfly. Uh, that was like huge for me. I like really, really love watching his videos and and learning uh, a lot from there. And then just like a smattering of, of people who supported me along the way. Ryan Murray uh, at Antiques on High. Uh, he gave me you know the bar book by uh, Jeffrey Morgenthaler um, and kind of encouraged me to like you know get into cocktails and and really like the entire like senior staff at Seven Sun and Antiques were like recognize like oh this kid like wants to do this you know and they and they like really always like encourage me and put me on a pedestal and let me cook i guess if you will so yeah those are the people that come to mind that really have helped me grow along the way what is your desert island wine it's something you can drink all day you know um so for me that's you know maybe some like rose bubbles maybe like some reventos Dinit is always fun. Uh, maybe some like uh, Chocolina, Chocolina Rosé is like a big, I love that. Love the Pirazzini like green pepper thing you get off of Chocolina Rosé. And I actually just learned uh, that the the Hunderibi Belza that is in Chocolina Rosé that gives the color for Chocolina Rosé is the parent grape of Cabernet Franc. And that's where Cabernet Franc gets its like Pirazzini-ness. So that was fun. Um, yeah, like anything just like with a, like a slight effervescence, rosé or white, nice and dry, uh, something that something that like is complex enough that will always like kind of keep me coming back. Because, um, you know, if it's going to be the only wine you're going to drink forever, uh, there's, there's got to be something there to like keep me excited about it. You know, you don't work in restaurants anymore, at least right now. But what's one that you'd recommend that isn't one that you previously worked at? Scenario I always give person stuck at airport, flight canceled. They reach out to you. Hey, where should I, where should I go eat? Sure. I mean, what first comes to mind is Chapman's. I mean, what they're doing there is just on another level. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to eat there a lot, a lot of times. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to do the private dining room there for my birthday last year, which was a total blast. Um, highly recommend that experience uh, for anyone. I also a uh, pretty big fan of uh, Barcelona. It's been a while since I've ate, eaten there, uh, but uh, when they used to do the top S Tuesdays, you know, you could like go and get like half off. Uh, my friends and I went there one night and ordered everything on the menu. Um, so that just kind of sticks in my mind as one of the better dining experiences I've had in town. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurants, a place you have not been to that you still want to travel to. And then also a place you haven't eaten at, but you still want to go to one day. Really want to go to Italy really badly i just want to go to italy and eat and drink until i can't anymore and i just want to like have the freshest seafood and the freshest pasta and the freshest 
great charcuterie and cheese and just like Italy feels to me like just like a food paradise. I know Italy, like, I, so like specifically would love to go to like the Amalfi coast um, for wine. I would love Sicily just always gets me really, really excited. So would love to go there. Um, that's for sure. Obviously France too. I haven't really done a lot of international travel, so I have a lot of stuff on my list that I like really need to check off. Um, and then as far as a food destination, you know, um, I would really, really like to, you know, I, I have not ever eaten at like a Michelin star restaurant. You know, like I said, I'm a Columbus guy. Like I, I have the taste, I think for this kind of stuff. I just haven't, I haven't been afforded the, um, opportunity to like really get into like fine dining, that kind of thing. But, um, I really like, I really love to go up to, um, and try some of Maddie Matheson's restaurants up in Canada, like, um, seafood prime and, would love to like check that stuff out in in new york i'd love to go to um four horsemen which is like a really really well-known uh wine destination for natural wine specifically um would love to eat at the french laundry uh obviously in california that would be incredible yeah i i think uh that's that's kind of what i got off the top of my head maybe uh i also also like really love korean barbecue so uh coat in new york would be really fun too that was a crazy wine list there too so. craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant or bar while you were working yeah i definitely seen some pretty terrible stuff um yeah just like people getting too belligerent and like yelling at you calling you mean names like you know when you have to cut somebody off it's like never fun um one story that comes to mind and this is kind of a wild story uh, it was like middle of winter, probably this was pre COVID. So like I had just got my bartending, like I was able to like bartend at antiques. So I'd just like pick up some Fridays occasionally just to like get into it. And antiques was like a different place pre COVID. Like it was just wild in there, always packed four deep, you know, at the bar. It's still busy, but it's busy in a different way. Now there was this night, it was like really cold. This guy comes in, he's like hanging out with all his buddies. He's clearly like kind of drunk. Um, and, you know, but like, no big deal. Like I serve him. He's fine. It goes on and on. And then it gets to the point where like, you know, I can like, like really, really tell this guy's like pretty intoxicated. Um, so he like, and then he goes to order, which is a bad move. He goes to order a double scotch off of me. And I was like, no, <laughs> like, I was just like, you know, how about a beer? He immediately like flipped the switch and was like, got really upset with me and was like, oh, so you're choosing what I drink now, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, hey, man, like, you know, you seem like kind of, you know, pretty intoxicated. Like you're kind of stumbling around out there on the, you know, at the, talking to your friends and stuff. And I just want to make sure everything's cool. And he like gives me this look and he goes, oh, you don't like the way that I walk? And I was like, what? Like, no, I just, you seem really intoxicated. And he's like wearing pants. So like, I can't tell, but. He has a prosthetic leg and just goes off on me about how I'm like, you know, discriminating against him and like, you know, being just absolutely an asshole. And at the time, I'm like brand new to bartending. This is the first time I've ever cut anyone off, actually, I should say. So I'm like, I'm like freaking out. He gets his phone out. He's like filming me. Um, you know, he like starts like hitting his vape and there's like blowing clouds, like all over the bar, like bragging about how much money he makes and like, you know, all this. And 
Uh, it was a really unfortunate situation. Obviously, I had no idea that the guy was, you know, an amputee. And I just like, you know, I, and that was not at all the reason that I cut him off. Um, but he took it that way. It made for a fun story. We we still laugh about that to this day. So, Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever, that's just uh, kind of unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself? Topo Chico is a problem for me. I don't know if it's really unhealthy for you. I hear it can like be bad for your teeth. Drink an insane amount of Topo Chico. Uh, blame that on John Marr uh, from Ginger Rabbit and Lobert. I blame that on him 100%. Uh, we just got into a, a rhythm there at Ginger Rabbit. We're just drinking, drinking the place out of Topo Chico. And now I can't stop. Uh, so that's one. Another guilty pleasure for me is Wario's Beef and Pork. Um, definitely on a cadence there where I am eating there at least once every two weeks. And there's definitely been a time where I'm eating there weekly. I just cannot get enough. Um, <laughs> all their sandwiches are like 10 out of 10. The guys there are just so cool. And uh, I love all the specials and stuff. Um, but yeah, definitely, it's definitely not healthy for you uh, uh, eating, eating there. Unfortunately, it's more of a treat. Yeah, man. I, I love that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, th- those are kind of like, for me, like the, the big thing. Ice cream is a problem as well. I, I have an unhealthy obsession with ice cream and um, definitely uh, have gotten my girlfriend into ice cream too, because I just, uh, I tend to have it around. Next question is wine recommendations. So categories are zero to $20 a bottle, zero to $50, zero to a hundred and then over a hundred. So what is something that you think people should be drinking in the natural wine world within those categories? What would you recommend? Under 20, I really like to have fun with undisgorged pet nats. So for me, like a lot of Italian producers kind of like seem to do this Polfondo Prosecco is really fun. hundred percent Glera. It's like the OG way of making Prosecco. Now it's like tank method, I'm pretty sure, uh, for the most part. So uh, all the so basically with an undisgorged pet nat, you know, it's a it's a the fermentation is like happening in bottle. So all the yeast is in there, and it's just you know it's a little cloudy and funky and weird. But like you know, you can also you can be careful about pouring it if you want to avoid all that. But I don't know. Typically, the dead yeast in the bottles is like fine enough that you're not really like it's not like chunky or anything on the um, in the mouth or anything. So yeah, some my favorite right now is um, Tenuta Santa Lucia uh, e Galette Rosato, eighteen bucks on the shelf, sparkling Sangiovese, absolutely killer uh, for the price point. Zero to fifty. I mean, uh, that's for me. That's the whole. <laughs> there's so much there uh, between twenty and fifty bucks. I mean, there is just so much you can get your hands on, you know. And for me, I'm really into Styria right now. So the Styria Five, kind of like these five well-known natural producers. Uh, the ones that kind of are in Columbus right now are um, Muster and Verlich. Um, so under 50, you can find some absolute lights out Savion Blanc, Chardonnay from that region. Just you shouldn't miss it. Um, those are those for me. That's that's really exciting right now. 50 and over. I would go for like a long maceration orange wine. Um, I think some maybe some Radicon or some Grovner, you know, maybe some yeah, like some of the exterior producers like Muster and um, they make long maceration oranges over 50. 
Um, so like a lot of people, I think have tasted orange wine, but they haven't tasted like high end orange wine. And there's a massive, massive difference in what's in the glass. They're a lot more serious. You know, they can evolve over hours and hours in the glass. They're really something that you can just sit with and, and think about and enjoy. And typically you can find some older vintages too, um, on those, especially the Radicon. I know they like to release some back vintages, which is always really fun. So yeah, that would be for 15 over for sure for me. Uh, if you're if you're trying to get into natural wine, that's really important. And then 100 and over, oh, well, I mean, you know, everyone's gonna say champagne, obviously. Um, you know, spend some spend the money on some Grand Cru uh, grower champagne for sure. It's never gonna never gonna steer you wrong. Um, I also think uh, it's really fun to maybe try to find some, you know, maybe like some middle of the road burgundy if you can find it that's the problem like finding this stuff can sometimes be extremely difficult you have to know the right people and know the right places to go and ask but yeah i'll go so for ease of finding i'll go grower champagne something grand crew because typically grower champagne is not that expensive it's been like 50 and 70 bucks but if you're gonna you know spend 100 i would i would go for i would go for the, the best of the best and then as far as like no price point I mean, I'm just going for unicorns here, you know, wines that you would absolutely never find in the Ohio market. I got the chance to taste a little bit of Auvergnois, um, which is a Jura producer um, at Natty Wine Fest. That blew my socks off. That was an 04 vintage. I think I found, a, I think it was on Thatcher's Wine. I found like a thousand dollar bottle of like 1999 uh, Savigny. It was like a thousand bucks. Like something like that would like really, 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 really be exciting. Um, and then, and then, yeah, like the, you know, if you're into wine, like, you know, I mean, I think maybe people will think just because I'm in the natural wine world that I don't like, I'm not into like the classic stuff. Like if, if money's no object, like, of course I want to taste DRC. Of course I want to taste, you know, Latash and, you know, Richborg. And I, I, that is so far out of my realm of being able to ever have access to it. Well, maybe a little, maybe I could have access to it, but affording it, absolutely not. And, you know, maybe tasting, you know, some Pingus or, you know, or Petrus or, you know, I, I, that to me, I'm just excited about wine in general. Natural wine is like a cool, you know, I love it. And that's kind of what I do professionally, but like, um, again, like would be really excited to kind of taste some of those uh, hard to get like unicorns that, you know, most people don't get to even look at. What's one book focused on beverage that you think everyone should read? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier, for sure, The World of Natural Wine by Aaron Ayskoff. I think that's huge, especially if you want to get into natural wine in general. The Bar Book by Jeffrey Morgenthaler was big for me. Definitely, like, great, especially for, for cocktails. Great, like, kind of, um, just, it, it tells you everything. It tells you, like, how to cut ice, how to, like, you know, make fun syrups. Um, and then on, on a more advanced level, Liquid Intelligence by Dave Arnold for cocktails. If you want to like really, you know, basically take it to a chemistry level <laughs> um, of like hardcore um, cocktail science, like it's, it's very, very intense. Yeah. Th- that would be for sure. Something that I would recommend those, those three for sure. Last question. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, is there a moment episode scene that stands out to you still about him? If you weren't, is there anybody that's on TV uh, that you kind of gravitated towards? Uh, just anybody with a travel or culinary program? 
yeah, big Bourdain fan. Always have been. Uh, definitely watched all that stuff growing up uh, when I was interested in, in cooking and being a chef. Um, I think the episode that stands out most to me is when they go to the French Laundry um, with Eric Repair and a couple other like really famous chefs there um, that he goes with. And it's just like complete gluttony. Like, And I think Bourdain does a really good job of like explaining to you like really how much they had to eat that night. And like just like the level of execution. I mean, the fact that Thomas Keller was able to like make a Marlboro cigarette ice cream to like give to Anthony, just really, really cool. Um, and definitely something that someday maybe would love to have the opportunity to, to have a meal like that. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Uh, yeah. So on Instagram, it's uh, OC Boyd, B-O-Y-D, uh, no caps, no spaces. That's still mostly like a um, hiking page, to be honest with you. I post on my stories about just like wine that I'm excited about and that kind of thing. If you're interested in that, don't take our weekends uh, at don't take our weekend. WKND is where you can find the pop up stuff. Um, and then at Voyager Beverage uh, is where you can find everything uh, Voyager related. So that's kind of where I am. Social media, I don't really do uh, anything else currently besides the gram. This was awesome. You know, always interested in touching on different aspects of the wine industry and natural wine um, is something that is just growing uh, here in Ohio. Is kind of touched on with the wine festival here in Columbus first year, and Cincinnati's been doing it for a couple of years too as well, and just continuously growing. So, have been able to try, I think, a few things that Voyager brings in that we picked up around some some wine shops and stuff. So, always kind of fun to just watch along the social medias of any of the small distributors or uh, importers or anything kind of the new stuff that they get and where you can kind of find it and stuff. And if you want to go try it and, and that's a really good way to kind of expand horizons on kind of the wine industry, because all the stuff that everybody knows or even casually is super expensive. And a lot of us can't get there uh, <laughs> into some of those price points for some of this stuff. So, you know, being able to find bottles of wine that are in, you know, the, 20 to $50 range and it's high quality stuff and it's interesting and unique. It's definitely awesome. So yeah, appreciate you coming on and taking some time out of your day to chat about where you're at in the industry and looking forward to seeing, following along in the stories and the next uh, pop-up that you guys do. And then I'll see your progression through if you decide to do any exams or anything like that too, as well, and kind of follow along uh, from afar here, but I'm sure we'll be seeing you, you know, one of the next pop-ups that you guys do. For sure. Yeah. And I uh, just like, lastly, I'd like to say like, you know, if anyone has any questions or anything about wine or natural wine, reach out and definitely like looking to build more of a wine community here in Columbus. Um, you know, let's get together. Let's pop some corks. Let's, you know, let's have a good time. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on. Cheers. Thank you. Big thanks again to Eddie for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day off to jump on and chat about his career, how he got into the wine industry, answering all our questions and inquiries on hiking and, and that whole aspect. So have a little knowledge behind that too as well. So you can find Eddie. He's on Instagram at OC underscore Boyd. You can also follow Voyager Beverage. They're just at Voyager Beverage. And also follow the Don't Take Our Weekend pop-up. It's at Don't Take Our Weekend. In between every word, there's a period and then weekends abbreviated WKND. But you can follow them there for latest news announcements for the next pop-up when they do it too as well. So like I said, that should be coming sometime soon here. 
you know, as they kind of find the time and as we get through probably the holiday break and everything for everyone um, and what they're going to be doing kind of next iteration that he kind of teased too. So follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social medias, but that's the main one that we use. Follow, subscribe to the podcast or whatever podcast platform that you prefer to listen to and consume podcasts. You can follow our YouTube channel. And you can also check out the website, spoonmob.com, for any additional information on any of our guests or contact information or just to look at photos or whatever. Appreciate everybody who's been listening. Appreciate everybody who's been writing in. Continue to do so. It's cool to see that engagement. But appreciate the recommendations that we've gotten recently from a few people too as well. So that's been awesome. Cool stuff to kind of check out. Kind of been in a weird situation with not being able to check out some stuff recently, but I'm looking forward to getting back and kind of exploring some new stuff that's been popping up, uh, not just around Columbus, but we have some places in Dayton and Cleveland and Cincinnati we want to get to. So as things kind of free up uh, within the schedule, as we get through the holidays and everything, we'll be able to kind of check out more places. I have a list and it's uh, growing a little bit. We got some cool stuff that we'll be doing and we'll be posting photos and everything, but as always, appreciate everybody who's been listening. Can't thank you guys enough. So as we get closer and closer to 150 episodes here, check out any episodes that you might have missed to continue to help spread the word. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. If you're relatively new, welcome. Hope you've been enjoying what we're doing. And uh, we got more cool stuff on the way too as well for you guys. But that's it for this week. Talk to you guys next week on Thursday.